Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Welcome back. Hello. Hope you've all been well. Actually, what is the date today, Hannah? When are we recording? Yeah, this is important. Today is the 31st of January 2020. It's the f- deadline for the transfer season of the British Football League. Is it? It is soccer for American listeners. Yeah, is that why it's the most? It's an important day today. Uh, well, yes, but also no. I think even I've even seen some uh, kind of people in my social media feeds in in the United States who aren't British are aware of what's happened today. What has happened today? Um, today is well, depending on where you sit, will kind of frame your discourse of this, but. For you and I, today is Brexit Day. Happy Independence Day, Great Britain. You're independent again. From nobody. Yourselves. I don't know. What's So we've talked before about your sense of identity and particularly a kind of, not a kind of national identity because we're quite skeptical of nationalism, but in terms of your passport and where you're from, we talk about it. And sometimes we... we lovingly joke about um how you get to pick on a daily basis kind of where you're from sometimes oh, you're indian, or where i'm not from or where you're not from and sometimes you're indian and sometimes you're british and i'm curious about what you're feeling today i haven't been either for a long time <laughs> uh yeah neither of the countries that i've called home are places that i feel i belong to and have been places i've, I've felt i've belonged to for for a long time um and I guess one of the things that we want to talk about today uh, is what the 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 day itself, you know, eleven o'clock this evening, which is three hours from now as we are recording, mm-hmm. um, is going to be the moment that the United Kingdom leaves the European Union. That's that's the, the Brexit day, and we we want to think about what this means as an emotional moment, right? What are the, all of us have had various kinds of emotions. Um, you mentioned passport. The 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 nature of of British passports before Brexit, the nature of British passports after Brexit, have been a, an important, some for some reason, significant part of the debate. Where mm. you know the pro Brexit side talk about how we'll get a, a blue British passport back instead of these flimsy red European Union passports. As a person with a blue passport. I can tell you, you get a real sense of superiority. And it is down to... It's the color of the, the passport, is it? The blue yes. passport. Indian passports are the same blue as American passports. See, we share lots. Yeah, but an Indian passport doesn't give you the same sense of superiority <laughs> that an American passport does. <laughs> yeah, you get treated very differently in immigration lines. Indeed. Yes. Um, but... We want to talk about emotions, right? We want to talk about our own emotions as we experience this day. Uh, and we want to talk about how emotional attachments of various kinds to identities, to institutions, to objects have been shaped by the lead up to the 2016 referendum, the vote itself, the results of the vote, and everything that has happened over the last four years as we've gone down this road, which has culminated today in Britain leaving the EU. 
Yes. Um, what are your emotional reactions today? Yeah, I mean, I we've talked before about how I I I only have limited emotional space, and what happens in the United States a lot of the time takes up quite a bit of my kind of existential and identity based emotions, um, especially at the moment, um, given some of the news that's coming out of of the US uh, but it's a kind of detached sadness because and I, I think some of it stems from my identity as the the academic that I am so the kind of research that I do is concerned specifically with nationalism identity formation borders and mapping so for me what's happened is fundamentally painful partly because I I know the historical precedents and I know what nationalism can do and the the kind of violence it can do and the, the ways that it can make people's lives more difficult. Um, and because I know that and because it's like screaming into a void, um, it, is, it is a sense of kind of detached sadness that it, it, there's a kind of floating sensation to it of being detached quite literally um um do you i mean i guess it's difficult to be able to say this of oneself do you think the detachment is a kind of coping mechanism definitely and i think also because i'm american um from the united states the i already feel a sense of bureaucratic and institutional detachment that's caused by immigration the immigration procedures that i am subject to so the activities that I have to undergo in order to be a member of, of British society are alienating um, the, and dehumanizing. Um, and I am subject to kind of the least of those procedures, of course. Um, but they are dehumanizing and they they actively remind me on a daily basis that I am not a full member of British society and that I'm here, you know, on a contingent basis Um you know, and it could be that a politician hears this podcast and decides not to renew a visa for me in a year, you know. Um, and th- that automatically makes me feel less responsible, I think, for uh, Brexit in the way that a lot of British people kind of say, there's been a, a I've seen some really interesting memes and posts and comments, for, especially from Scottish friends who say, you know, this doesn't represent me. I don't speak for this position. I don't, I don't like this position. Please don't judge, you know, me and don't judge Scotland on the basis of the kind of behavior of pro leave positions and the the kind of Brexit party, Nigel Farage and stuff. So I feel less responsible in that sense because I'm not represented here anyway. I don't get to vote. I didn't get to vote. Um, Nobody listens to me. Um, So it, the detachment is a practical one, but then it is also a kind of a standard coping mechanism that I think academics are really good at at doing because we spend a lot of our time abstracting stuff that is painful in order to look at it. Um, so we intellectually and methodologically are trained to insulate ourselves a bit from that kind of emotional response, which is why we're able to sit here and talk about identity and talk about sadness and grief um, in a way that I think probably sounds detached. Yeah, I've been, th- I've been, I mean, we, we'd planned to record tonight partly because tonight is the day. 
We were and we recorded in March as well. So the original yes. Brexit day, we recorded the original Brexit day and talked about how Brexit is an idea and a fantasy and Brexit as a reality were two completely different things. And I mean, the process is by no means over. Brexit no. is by no means a reality. Uh, in other words, we don't know what Brexit will look like. We don't know what Britain's life will be like outside the European Union. But both myself and most people I know who I've spoken to today have been, and my social media timeline, has been saturated with an emotion that is akin to grief. I don't mm -hmm. think it's putting it too strongly to say that people are grieving. Mm -hmm. And in that detached way that you spoke about, while I share the grief, I'm really interested in how all of us, whether we are on the leave side, whether we are on the remain side, our, our relationship to the institution that is the European Union has been transformed as a result of the referendum. Yep. Right? In other words, it doesn't matter how strong a Remainer any of us might be. I don't imagine that in 2010 or 2012 or 2014 even, we would ever have discussed our relationship to the European Union as an institution specifically in such loving, mournful, elegiac terms. Yes, the familial terms. Yeah, um, I was think you know we'll we'll put it in the in the comments the uh, old Lang Syne video. So as the as the European Union voted to ratify the the Brexit bill, marking the you know onset of the process, the the formal departure of the of uh, the United Kingdom from the European Union, pretty much everyone in the in the uh, European Parliament stood up, held hands, and sang old Lang Syne. You know, should old acquaintances be forgot? The idea being that there's a kind of friendship that will somehow carry on. The Green Party and the Green the Green Party group of the European Union Parliament tweeted this video out, and the hashtag was "Leave a light on." You know, you will we will see you again. You will be coming back. You'll be and this this sense of a a, a realignment of national borders and national. Um, and international entities, you know, bureaucratic entities, which, after all, is what the Brexit process is. It's 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 the the realignment of Britain in terms of its political connections with its neighbours. How that bureaucratic process is being experienced by all of us as a moment of loss, of grief, of heartbreak of bereavement even you know the, the the end of an idea the death of an idea um and i'm fine i'm finding that emotional reaction in myself and and people around me really fascinating yes i think because i mean you study partition from a, a slightly different angle to me um and part of your angle is to where you deal with complexities and identity that you can't fit identity formation especially around really traumatic moments of geopolitical upheaval into clear boxes and a lot of the ambivalent stories that you've collected over the years demonstrate a real kind of ambivalence and its relationship to violence and 
because I study big picture discourses, I study geopolitical discourses and and um, kind of decolonizing discourses on the part of people in positions of power and institutions in positions of power. I think we come at this from complementary but slightly different angles. And because I work so much with nationalism and often quite jingoistic, simplistic, um, triumphalist forms of nationalist discourse in the liter- like in the archive, um, I'm, I'm very cynical because I, I was never, I wasn't that surprised about the way that, that Brexit has kind of been conducted since the referendum. I was surprised at the, at the democratic result. I was surprised at the, the demographics and the, the numbers of people who voted for what, definitely. Um, but I, I wasn't surprised at the, the language of the discourse because it's what it looks like across the kind of archives. So the historical precedents we have are... So talking about that, does your archive, which is different from my archive, as mm-hmm. you say, my, my archive is suffused with emotion. <clears throat> yes. What kind of emotional traces do you see in your archive? They are... There's a, it's, it's masculinist pride. It's uh, British... There's a lot of British stoicism... Um, there's, there's some kind of racialized, there's obviously lots of racialized discourse. There's racialized descriptions of post or anti-colonial and then post-colonial nationalism. So there's a kind of, um, paternalistic description of like Nehru's dignity, for example, um, or the kind of impressive intellectualism of Jinnah, um, who we've talked about before on the podcast and the, the nationalist, the story of nationalism that is projected in that archive is one of, um, at the time, it's just annoying. It's an, it's a kind of irritation and it's a sort of, how do we deal with this? We being the British. Yeah. Yeah. How do we deal with this? And then on the kind of nationalist side, the sort of intellectual engagements on the part of Indian intellectuals, um, it's, it's idealized. A lot of it is idealized and it's, it's, beautifully written um it's logically kind of put forward and it is it's classic anti-colonial nationalist writing in english um and those two positions sit and i think one of the reasons you do your research and why we continue to kind of discuss is because your research is necessary the stories that you collect in the archive that you work with is necessary to combat the assumption that my archive is ontologically real, by which I mean what they say in the archive reflects a kind of reality across the board. A, a truth with a capital a T. truth, yeah. yeah, and it doesn't. Mm. It's it's myth. And, and so is mine. Yes. But I guess my archive in its disorderliness is able to challenge the the sense of absolute coherence that your archive pretends yeah and because my archive is a projection of power what your archive does is it undermines some of the some of the power of my archive and i think because i because i work with the i don't work with the grief i work with the power of the institutions and the political parties to a large extent and and really intellectual groups i work essentially with 
um, the kind of everyday man of empire, the civil servant, the colonial officer, the geographer, the engineer. That's the kind of archive I work with. And they are, they really buy into that high level hegemonic myth as opposed to the individual or familial story myth. So what's fascinating then is, I mean, a number of things, but I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering what the Brexit archive will one day look like. And I wonder if the high politics, bureaucratic process bit of the Brexit archive, which is the analogy to, to the archive you use, mm-hmm. I wonder if compared to partition then, that, that archive will have more visible traces of grief mentioned the old Lang Syne video. That is mm-hmm. that is an equivalent, right? Like the the if you imagine sort of minutes of the European Union Parliament, which will be in the archive for for future historians to look at, will carry within it traces of that grief. Which from 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 your description of your archive isn't the case for partition. Yeah. I think partly um <clears throat> Partly there's a time element, so, and also there's a fundamental difference, so, which is colonialism. The Leave campaign promoted Britain as being, the UK as, as being colonized by Europe. They used, they appropriated language of anti-colonial nationalists. But the reality of the situation was the opposite. So... When we're talking about India and Pakistan, we are talking about a relationship between a colonizer, Britain, and the colonized. Um, And there's, you know, obviously we talk about this all the time, power relationships across the board among the Indian nationalists and everybody else. But the relationship was a colonial, anti-colonial one. The European Union and Great Britain have appropriated a lot of that language, but incorrectly and anachronistically. So what's happened, and I think where academics get so frustrated and where the detachment comes in as a coping mechanism, is we were kind of going blue in the face saying, no, that's not what's happening here. The the evidence does not suggest that Britain is colonized. But going by our own emotional reactions today, and the emotional reactions of leave supporters today which is you know a very different set of emotional reactions to do with joy and they're very emotional and relief and all of you know whatever they might they might think and feel triumph as well i think i think triumph is very much there uh vindication yep um perhaps we even though we went blue in the face saying this is not what what is happening the evidence doesn't show this maybe that argument was always going to be flawed because we didn't make space in our argument for emotion. Yeah. Because we didn't realize, A, how powerful emotion is going to be on the other side, and B, we didn't realize the emotional extent of our own connection to Europe. Right? I certainly never imagined that I would be close to tears at watching a video coming out of the European Union Parliament. Yeah. Right? The European Union has never for anybody been an object of emotion in the way it, it is today. Yeah. And in fact, it, it's 
been more often an object of kind of anger and it's a symbol of power, certainly in the way that it's treated Greece, for example. And to be honest, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. But I think, and this is, you know, this is one reason why I wanted to, to, to do this episode in, through the lens of emotion. Uh, up until 2011, 2012, maybe even slightly later, I don't even think the European Union was an object of anger. I think it was irrelevant. Yeah, it just wasn't. Right? It, it just, was what it was. It wasn't, it wasn't on anyone's agenda. It wasn't, there wasn't this overwhelming public demand for a referendum. There wasn't a huge amount of public debate. Uh, there was more emotional connection to vestiges of British identity that were felt to be under threat. So, you know, the pound as opposed to the euro or mm -hmm. imperial measures as opposed to metric measures and so on. But even that was sort of a relatively fringe issue. Yeah. And one of the puzzles of the whole Brexit referendum the debate, the referendum and its legacy will be how has a relatively minor marginal issue, what was not that long ago, a relatively minor and marginal issue, has managed to achieve such emotional significance to the point where, you know, friends of mine on Facebook are proudly, defiantly, entirely genuinely declaring their European identity in a way I don't think they would have it would have occurred to them had Britain not been leaving the EU. Yeah. Right? They would have thought of themselves as European, but that identity wouldn't be defining them in the way it is for so many people today. Yeah. I mean it is a weird it's a weird identity to have. In a sense it it is It is only available to us with the loss because so much of the European Union isn't about, it's not really about identity. It wasn't about identity in its, in its formation. No, it wasn't. But the, but the things that, the things that most, if we, if we ignore the large question for the moment of what happens to the British economy now that it leaves the EU, because that, that seems to me a, much more intangible, difficult question to, to try to answer. So if we leave that as, to one side, the practical benefits in terms of day-to-day -day life for many people, if not most people, are not going to change, right? If you're a British citizen, you will be able to travel to Europe. You won't be able to work in Europe. But the proportion of British... The proportion of people who are ex expressing emotion who might want to go and work in Europe is quite low. Yeah. It is it makes complete sense why EU citizens living in Britain are grieving today. But I'm in a sense because it is less explicitly clear why British citizens living in Britain are grieving today. That's what I'm more interested in. At at what point does the symbolic importance of the EU insofar as, and we still haven't discussed what, what that might be, does that take over from any economic, policy, practical, legal, bureaucratic structures that we might miss now that they're going to disappear? Yeah. 
you know, like the the Human Rights Act or the Working Time Directive or or all of the various protections that the EU have offered yep. for workers, for the environment, for you know industrial standards, and on and on and on. All those material benefits put to one side. What is the symbolic importance of the European Union? Because it occurs to me that the emotional response that we are all experiencing today is more connected to that symbolic importance than the various material, quotidian, sort of boring, everyday legacies effects of you of of being in the EU. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about the the role of the left a lot, and the a lot of the discourse around emotion and Brexit was surrounded people who voted to leave. Um, which we've talked about before. And that position we think about and it's characterized as driven very much by identity formation and identity construction, which is at its heart an affective and emotional process. And it's tied up in cultural practice. The other position, which was until very recently, what we kind of thought of as the more dominant position, which is essentially you don't care about the EU and you don't really, in a sense, you don't think about the EU because it's there and it's just the status quo that Britain is, the UK is a member of the EU and you get, you know, your life is kind of ordered based around that relationship. Because that is no longer the dominant position, there is now, and I think once that shift happens, that is where a lot of reactionary identity formation comes from. And obviously I, don't want to equate right-wing nationalism with pro-EU sentiment, (laughs) kind of uh, pro-EU or EU identity, European, essentially European identity, because they're fundamentally not the same. But it's because it's, I think it is, it's the loss that instigates the creation of the identity. And and that's perhaps the biggest failure mm. of either the Remain camp during the referendum or more generally a pro-EU political movement in Britain is that until Brexit happened, until the referendum was passed, that larger political movement was pretty useless at being able to construct Europeanness as an emotional identity. Yeah, you know, people people who voted to remain were generally speaking convinced of the the role of the EU as as a progressive thing, as a you know corrective to English conservatism, as a way to enable free mo- free movement of people and goods, as a way to enable environmental protections and workers' protections and all of those things. But there's a jump somehow between all of that and an emotional affective connection to myself as a European subject. Yeah. Where all of Europe helps to define me. Yeah. And in in a way that is much more common in France or Germany or Spain. There's something about the English Channel that has historically, until now, ironically, until Brexit, has historically impeded the formation of a positive, affective, emotional connection to Europe as fellow Europeans. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of all sorts of different things. Scotland is 
is distinctive in this way because Scotland has a um, there's a tradition here of kind of talking about Scottish, especially historic connections to France, for example, um, that old alliance, but also Scotland's connection to Scandinavia, which is a bit more, you get a bit more of that when you go further north um, because Shetland and Orkney and um, the kind of North Highlands, they are historically, there's a Scandinavian historical connection and also kind of, when we talk about oil and stuff, that there's a sort of Scandinavian realm. So there is, and there are in institutions in Scotland, there are Scandinavian studies departments that are distinctive from Scandinavian studies departments further south. And so you have a kind of, there's an interesting thing happening in Scotland that I think is layered um, and complicated around Brexit. But there's also a, a very, and I, I don't like I don't like to say English, but that's what I mean. That that divide, that English Channel divide, is it is very much a kind of um, if. And I don't know if this comes from this is more speculation and kind of thinking out loud. If that comes from a residual position of power, a discourse of power where Englishness and empire are equated. And Englishness and power and dominance are equated, and it, Englishness and superiority are equated. That you know, England has the most effective class system. England has has the most advanced culture and civilization. England has the most advanced form of democracy. You know, this kind of England brought the industrial revolution to the world, and you know, it didn't. India did. But <laughs> what's historical fact? But there is a kind of because Englishness. There's a sort of mirror going on where because. A lot of we we talk about Brexit as coming from a, an English sense of loss of power or a loss of importance or significance. Brexit was this moment of of reminding the world and reminding Europe and reminding Britain itself that it was once powerful and Englishness as the kind of the symbol or kind of I guess shorthand for that power. And now that that you know you and I sort of sit in the position of waning power, that emotional identity comes to the fore because because it is lost. Whether it's a real loss or a symbolic loss doesn't matter. In the sense that Englishness or white right, you know, white fragility comes out of this sense of of loss as well. And it is not just a loss of practical power and influence. It's a loss of a sense of who you are mattering, having some sort of significance on an existential level. Yeah, um, lots of thoughts from from that. Um, that that white fragility is the sort of working white working class Trump voter, right? The the sense of a way of life is being taken away from us. Yeah, I think well, demographically, it's also very importantly the white middle class yes, Trump voter. Yeah. Um, I completely agree with your analysis of the emotional impact of leaving the eu on the on the english sense of its of english nationalism uh and and english nationalism defined it as a sort of loss of empire if you like you know it's uh the, the more i think about it the more i think paul gilroy's postcolonial melancholia is is yeah. absolutely at the heart of what's happening so so that's absolutely true um 
where I think I might disagree slightly is in your reading of Scotland. Mm. Because I'm not convinced that Scotland's increased support for the EU is down to an emotional sense of European identity. I think it is down more to Scotland's vision of itself as to the left of England and therefore not anti-immigration. And because it's not anti-immigration, or its sense of itself is not anti-immigration, therefore it doesn't vote to leave. I don't I don't know if there is any more of a of a defined sense of Europeanness as an emotional identity in Scotland than there is in England. I don't know. I think the the way that all my Scottish kind of social media has been talking, the way they've talked for a long time. Yeah, but did they talk about it in 2012? In, but in 2014, yeah, there was a real fear. And it wasn't just a practical fear of Scotland's independence, meaning that Scotland wouldn't be a part of the EU. There was a kind of existential fear of being on, on their own. And Scotland doesn't like, I think, a Scottish sense of, of security and stability comes from alliance and from connection because Scotland is it's pretty far north. It's pretty small. There's not very many people here. We don't have much food. Like the, Scotland has a real historical connection to being outward looking to the point where Scotland was heavily involved in the empire. I mean, that's something that we're not talking about here. Absolutely. But that needs to be mentioned. You know, Scottish people were did pretty well. Certain families did pretty well by engaging in imperial practice. So, not and, in slavery. Yeah, very much so. And there's a kind of, not to not to romanticize imperial behavior and activity, but there is a kind of worldliness to Scottish identity um, that isn't the same kind of worldliness that in, animates a lot of English identity. A lot of English identity is like, come to us. And a lot of Scottish identity is, we're outward looking. There's a history of, of encounter and um, engagement that is, and that was a real, a really important aspect of the 2014 independence referendum. Ironically, yes. Yeah, where, and a lot of the, um, the no vote, it was a practical kind of don't want to leave the EU, but it was also an emotional, we don't want to portray Scotland as being insular. And a lot of the the SNP rhetoric was, this isn't about us being insular. This is about us being able to be more a part of the world than the rest of the UK is. It's a it it it's a really interesting place to be, Scotland, given how little it is, given how white it is. Yeah, and given how at odds its dominant narrative today is. With its imperial past, yes, um, and you know, with certain certain uh, strong strong racial issues in the present, yeah. Uh, but but the the dominant hegemonic narrative in Scotland is clearly a uh, pro-immigration, inclusive, outward-looking um, yep. alternative to Englishness, yeah. And and without wishing to be overly cynical, I do wonder to what extent this outward-looking aspect of Scottish identity is reinforced 
in oppositional terms because Scotland doesn't want to be like England. Yeah. And the more England becomes inward looking and white supremacist, the more Scotland wants to do the opposite. Yeah. And and this goes back to the point I was trying to make is I'm I'm not convinced that the outward looking global Scotland narrative is necessarily connected to at least in in any any direct terms connected to the sense of sense of emotional attachment to the institution that is the EU mm-hmm. that we see today um and i mean i was i was thinking while you were talking earlier on it's a very strange analogy but the speed at which we in britain england and scotland have developed emotional connections to the eu reminds me a little bit of on on both camps as it were emotional connections to the global muslim community after 9/11 oh yeah like you know June 2011 sorry June 2001 I don't imagine most people in on the streets of London New York you know maybe even Paris would necessarily have known anything about muslims mm. would necessarily have picked muslims to be the most important issue in the world yeah and then 911 happens and for the racist white population around the world muslims become the number one target and because that happens because that emotional connection gets established for the the people who are resisting that it becomes the direct opposite right where mm-hmm. islamophobia becomes the biggest threat and you have developed progressive emotional connections to this globally marginalized disenfranchised population. Yes. And I think there is something similar in terms of the speed with which the the emotional connections to the EU gets established to do with Brexit. And whether or not Britain remains in the EU ever again, whether it re-enters the EU, whatever Britain's relationship with the EU now is going forward, I wonder if the biggest takeaway is going to be the the divisions that resulted in and culminated and and came out of brexit will continue to manifest themselves in this polar opposite emotional connection to the concept of being european yeah yeah the the binary is set up even though it's not really it's not really a binary no no Well, I think that's probably a good enough point to stop. Yeah, probably um, the worst episode <laughs> of all of them. Um I hope you've found something useful from it. Let us know your thoughts. Let us know how you feel about Brexit. And we'll catch you next week. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick and I have been an India Rich Audrey. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H Fitz and me at Dr. An India R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast and on Twitter at Theory Doctors. Our music is provided by the Agrarians and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Thank you.